Good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we want to invite, actually acknowledge the presence of your spirit this morning in our midst. We, uh, we pray that he'd be at work in our hearts, that as we think and wrestle about uh, the poor and compassion kids and all that means and what we can do, pray that we'd uh, catch a deeper glimpse of your heart and understand it better this morning. We uh, pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. You know, this morning I have a really simple goal, and that is I want to encourage you to sponsor a Compassion Kid. If you don't sponsor a Compassion Kid right now, I want to challenge you this morning so that at the end you decide, yeah, maybe, maybe that's something I should do. If you sponsor a kid already, whether it's through Compassion or World Venture or World Venture, World Vision or, or somebody else, you're doing a great thing. I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you to sponsor another one. Because <laughs> um, I think it's it's a, a, an awesome way to invest some of the resources that God has given us. We have set a goal to sponsor 500 Compassion children. We've done that in the past. We're at 383 right now. Let me, let me put that in financial terms. It's $38 a month. That means uh, in the course of a year right now, Waterstone people give $175,000 to Compassion Kids. If we get to 500, it will be $220,000 a year, almost $20,000 a month going from Waterstone. That's, that's pretty, you can do that, yeah. And, and you know, a lot of churches would be nervous about that because that's a lot of resources going out the door that's not coming into us, and we're not nervous about that at all. We think that's awesome. We think that's an incredible kingdom investment. That's exactly what we want to happen, to uh, have people who are part of Waterstone commit their resources to making a difference for the kingdom and the world. Um, but let's be honest. I know some of you showed up this morning, and when you were reminded or learned that it was Compassion Sunday, you kind of groaned inside. You think, oh, no, man, a guilt trip. I just wanted to show up and, and, and worship Jesus this morning. Um, well, I, I want you to consider something, okay, from the very start. I want you to consider the fact that sponsoring a compassion kid may be one of the most profound acts of worship you ever engage in. I mean, look at with, with me at, at James chapter 1, verse 27. James writes there, religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, the word there, religion, is the Greek word threskeia, um, which in other places actually is translated as worship or liturgy. It, it is the, uh, uh, the outward expression of our inward commitment to God, uh, of our faith, um, so, so uh, God looks at that expression, supporting widows and orphans, as great worship. And widows and orphans are simply representative of those in our world who are the most vulnerable. Uh, widows and orphans 
obviously orphans don't have parents, widows don't have a husband, so they have no safety net, so they're at the the mercy of the the community or the culture or the society they live in. Um, So any vulnerable fall into that category. And, And the point is, part of the way we declare the reality of God in our life, in other words, make Him big, in other words, worship Him, uh, um, is to do it by taking care of the vulnerable. And he sees that as great worship. So let me say it again. Sponsoring a compassion kid may be one of the most profound acts of worship that you've ever, ever engaged in. So in a sense, we are worshiping this morning. We're talking about the heart of worship. I was trying to think, what would be the best way to encourage us to sponsor a kid. Um, And I decided that maybe one way for me to do it this morning is just to share with you some of the reasons I sponsor Compassion Kids. Barb and I uh, sponsor three right now. Rose, who is 17. Uh, Fiona, who is 12. Godwin, who is seven. We had another uh, child who is now 25, Almaty. Um, who has graduated from the program. I, but, but as I do that, and I want to share with you a bit of my heart, but as I do that, I want, want you to understand two things. One, all the reasons I sponsor Compassion Kids, I think, are, are biblical. <laughs> they come out of the Scripture, and they flow uh, out because of my faith and commitment to Jesus. And, and two, I want you, as we go through this list, I, I want to challenge you to reflect a little bit to see if any of these reasons kind of resonate with you. So I want you to engage with that. So, so why I support Compassion Kids? Let me get, tell you a few things. First, I want to be in tune with God's heart. Uh, Bob Pierce, who founded uh, World Vision and later on Samaritan's Purse, he, he wrote these words on the inside of his Bible. And they've always haunted me. And I thought, that, that, I want that true of me. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. I, I want to be committed to those things that are near the core of God's heart. Now, <laughs> I don't always succeed uh, on that. Um, I find myself caring a lot about things that I'm pretty sure God could care less about, <laughs> couldn't care less about. But I keep working at it. I want my heart to be moved like God's heart. I want to care about what He cares about. And I have become convinced that one of the things that that is at the center of His heart is the poor and the vulnerable. Um, In fact, as I've read Scripture, I've become pretty convinced that that's right near the top for Him. I mean, if you go to the Old Testament, you quickly encounter this group uh, that people have labeled the quartet of the vulnerable. It's the orphan and the widow, we saw that in James 1.27, but also the alien or the immigrant and the poor. Listen to Zechariah chapter 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. What is it about those four groups that makes them stand out because they're mentioned again and again and again, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and you see it also in the New. Uh, what is it? Those are the groups that are powerless. Those are the groups that have no means 
or mechanism of support. In an agricultural, agrarian economy, they don't own land, so they, they can't produce their own income. They're, they're helpless. They have few of any rights. Uh, they're often taken advantage of. They live uh, in that culture at the subsistence level, on the edge of survival, uh, simply days from starvation if anything went wrong. And God says, wow, because they're so vulnerable, they have a special place in my heart. And what's interesting is I've looked deeper into the Old Testament around this, this issue of the poor and justice, uh, come to realize that God evaluates a community by how it treats its most vulnerable groups. And, and neglect of them by a community is not seen merely as a lack of mercy or a lack of compassion. It's actually, from God's perspective, seen as a lack of justice. The poor have a special place in God's heart. Um, in fact, one uh, Latin American theologian kind of coined this phrase, uh, God's preferential option for the poor. And, and it's this notion that God has a preferential concern for the poor. It doesn't mean he doesn't love the rich. He does. Uh, um, it, it's kind of like the mom who, who was being interviewed and was asked which of her kids she, she loves the most. And you know mom's saying, well, I love them all the same. She gave a much more insightful answer. She said, well, I guess I, guess I love the one most who needs me at that moment the most. And I thought, that's, that's true. Doesn't mean she doesn't love the others, but the one that needs you most is the one you love most at that moment. And it says if God's arms are out to the world, he loves the rich and he loves the poor, but he tilts towards those who are most vulnerable. And if that is true about God's heart, then I want it to be true about my heart. I want my arms to tilt a bit towards the poor. Deuteronomy 15, you, you see kind of God's value system here. In, in this passage, uh, uh, they're talking about how the community should treat the poor. And one of the things they say is give generously, generously to them, the poor, and do so without a, a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Why, why does God do that? Because he, you're loving what he loves. And so he, he responds in that way. So I want to be in tune with God's heart. Second reason. I have been incredibly blessed. I mean, honestly, I look at my life and I have it, I have it really good. I, I, um, I have a place to stay. I own my house. I, I never wonder where my next meal is coming from uh, or if it's coming. Uh, I mean, I, I, I may wonder about what I'm going to have, but I never wonder about its existence. I have access to, to clean water. Uh, my house is heated in, in the winter and cooled in the summer. If I get sick, I have incredible, amazing health care. I've said this before, and I think it's true for all of us. We have won the historical lottery. I have won the historical lottery just by the fact of where and when I was born. 
Now, now, sometimes I forget that because instead of comparing myself to the rest of the world, I tend to compare myself to others who have won the historical lottery as well. And, and I see, uh, you know, some got a little better than me. And I always focus on them and I think, oh, I don't have it so good. But that's only because I'm ignoring <laughs> the vast majority of the world in history. Because the moment I look at that, I go, oh, wow. I'm in the top 1%. I'm in the top 0.01% of the world in terms of what God has given to me. Um, and honestly, even if you just look at the current state of the world, I have it so lucky. The World Bank estimates <clears throat> that 3 billion people, half the world's population, lives on less than $2.50 a day. That, that means that 50% of the world lives on less than three of these every day. Three of these barely buys us a cup of coffee. And you say, well, Nick, you don't understand. A dollar goes a lot farther in their culture. Oh, I get that. Do you want to trade places with them? No, it doesn't go that far. It doesn't provide enough so that they have enough to eat and a great place to live or even transportation. Um, they don't. They don't. And, and we think, you know what we think? Oh, if they would just work harder, if, if they would just be more diligent, if they would just get their act. You know, none, none of that is true for the majority of the poor in the world. I mean, if they had an opportunity to get a job, or a better job if they had one, they would jump at it. But they don't have the means, the ability, opportunity, resources to improve their own state. They, 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 they need help from outside. You know, what, what has really driven that home for me is when I've had the opportunity to, to go to third world countries and kind of enter into their world um, I, I went to Uganda, actually, to visit um, our Compassion Kids. And while I was there, I was with some Compassion staff, and they said they had a special gift that they were going to take to a family. And I, I, I asked if I could go along, and they said, oh, yeah, that would be great. So, you know, I was thinking special gift. What, what would that be? Here was the special gift. It was a bag of grain, a bag of dried beans, and a gallon of cooking oil. And we took that to a family that lived in one room, five people, one bed, no electricity, obviously no run, running water. And that was everyday existence for them. All their possessions, I mean the whole family's possessions, could basically be put into one bag. Man, and they... They were so grateful for that gift because it, 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 it meant life for them. Man, I walk out and I think, man, I just have it so good. And, and when you start wrestling with that, you know, what, what do you think? Okay, what do I do? I mean, do I just sit around and, and feel guilty? Uh, um, and if you do that, if your response is simply to feel guilty, then what I found myself doing is then I try to insulate myself from being exposed to the poor so I don't have to, to see the, the gap 
and feel bad. It's kind of like Tony Campolo was telling the story. He was eating breakfast in Brazil and there was some street urchins. He was sitting by a window. He was eating his breakfast, street urchins, and they started looking in through the window at him as he ate his breakfast because they have nothing. The owner of the restaurant comes over and says, oh, I'm sorry, and he pulls down the shade so Tony doesn't have to see the kids. <laughs> he was thinking, yeah, that's what we do. That's what I do because I, I don't want to feel bad. But then I come across a verse like this, and, and, and I begin to realize that uh, just feeling guilty or ignoring the situation isn't a good solution. Luke 12 says this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will, will be asked. Um, in other words, we can be grateful for all that we have been given, and I should be incredibly grateful, and I am, but being grateful and then simply feeling guilty is not enough. At some point, I decided, you know, I have to become responsible. I, responsible. I need to embrace this principle that I know is true throughout Scripture, and it's simply this. I have been blessed to be a blessing. I've received a lot not simply so I can consume it on myself, but I have received it so I can be a conduit of those resources to others. So, so it changes the paradigm for me when I begin to see being blessed as this opportunity and responsibility to be radically generous. And that's the response I want. And it, it's interesting to me uh, um, that if you go to Judaism, the Old Testament religion of Judaism, how the Jews operated under the Old Testament, giving alms was seen not simply as an issue of charity, which is how we see it, giving to the poor is an issue of charity. In their culture, in their world, it was seen as an, an issue of justice. And if you think, why, why would they see it way, that way? It was because their underlying way of thinking was this notion that the material things that I have, uh, I've been given are entrusted to me. They're not given to me for my sake. They're given to me for the sake of the greater community, the greater good. If that's true and I were not to share, then I would be seen as an evil person, a perpetrator of injustice. In their understanding, we are to seek, uh, seek shalom, uh, uh, um, the flourishing of the whole community, the common good. And thus, wealth in their community becomes this huge responsibility. Uh, let me make it a little simpler. Imagine that somebody came to church and, and gave me a pie for my family. Now, if that happened... I would have lots of options. One option, say, say it was my favorite pie, angel food, a lemon pie, great pie, and I just love it, and I just want to eat it all myself. So I take the pie, and I decide I'm just, you know, I used to have a refrigerator in my office, so I put the pie in the refrigerator, and I don't, I'm not going to take it home. They'll never know. And I can eat the pie all myself. Now, if I do that, it's not simply an issue of, of being stingy. It's an issue of injustice because that pie wasn't just for me. So I, I, I have some other options. I can cut the pie into 
pieces, you know, me and my family. But we have seven people, and I don't know if you've ever tried to cut a pie in seven pieces. It's not easy. I always end up with one really big piece and six little ones. That's why in our family we stopped letting... We made a rule in our family that whoever cuts the pie has to choose their piece last. That works really well. (laughs) But I could keep my big piece for me, and then I take the little pieces home. No. What's supposed to happen? I'm supposed to take the pie home. And the notion is not that I'm not supposed to have a piece of the pie. I am. But the pie is for my family. Now, if I went out and bought the pie, then I could say, well, hey, it's my pie. I can do what I want with my pie. Right? And that's basically how we operate. All the stuff is my stuff. I can do what I want with my stuff. But I've come to the conclusion, I think this is biblical. All my stuff, guess what? Is not my stuff. Right? That's what we say. All our stuff is gifted to us. And we are what? Stewards. And if I'm a steward, then that means the pie is not just for me. And it means I have this responsibility to be a conduit of the pie. And if I take the pie that I have been given and simply consume it on me, that is an issue of justice. Not charity, not mercy, but of justice. I have a responsibility to be a blessing way beyond myself, to to be radically generous. And consistently, it's, it's fascinating to me that in the Old Testament, God brings judgment on his people for two prominent sins. And what they are? Idolatry and callousness against the poor. Good example, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The brimstone and fire hail down on them. Notice what Ezekiel 16 says about that. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. We always think it was sexual immorality. That's, that's not why Sodom was judged and destroyed. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. This is serious stuff from God's perspective because it's so close to his heart. So I want to be in tune with God's heart. I, 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 I've been incredibly blessed. Third reason for me is I want to express the reality of God's love and grace in my life. And um, I remember the first time I read this verse, 1 John chapter 3, it just, I thought, you've got to be kidding. Uh, If anyone has material possession and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And I thought, okay, what do I do with that? You know what John is saying here? He's saying there's a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's love and grace and his or her heart for the poor and the desperate. And it's kind of an equation. He's saying, look, if you really understand God's love and it's in your heart, then guess what? It's going to equal you helping those who are in need. But he he then turns the equation around. He says, and if you don't help those in need, then it brings into question 
what you've really experienced in your heart. And that's true, not only on an individual level, but a corporate level. When people look at Christianity and we're not helping the poor, then it raises the question, how much have we really experienced God's love and grace as his people? The notion is grace, love, generate generosity. <laughs> raises a really troubling question, doesn't it? If I don't give to the poor, does that mean I'm not a Christian? Uh, the answer to that is probably no. I, I believe there are some genuine Christians who don't demonstrate much concern for the poor. But I would like to believe, as Tim Keller puts it, that a heart for the poor sleeps down in a Christian's soul until it's awakened. Until it's awakened. I, I know for me, this has been a, a journey because when I first became a believer, it was in a, a fundamentalist church. Nobody talked about the poor. I went to college and I began reading a magazine called The Other Side and it started talking about the poor and it, it started talking about these verses in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I thought, wait, why am I not hearing about what is the state of the world and what our responsibility is to? And it was incredibly convicted, convicting, and it started putting me on this journey. And, and that's just grown over time. In fact, in the last 10 years, the notion of justice and how important that is to God and what that means for me and for our church and for our, uh, the church at large has just grown in my heart. And I've become convinced that what John says here is true we really experience, if I really experience the love of God in my heart, then it has to manifest in, in me caring about those who are in desperate need in the world. Um, and what motivates that, notice what he, the implication is, what motivates our concern for the poor ultimately is not guilt. What motivates our concern for the poor is grace, God's love. That's what wakes up the heart. Um, okay, fourth reason. I want to make a difference in the lives of these kids. <laughs> Man, the impact uh, uh, of sponsoring a kid, is, a kid is so huge. It's $38. That's less than what it costs us typically to go out for, for dinner, or especially if you take your kids. So what we're giving up is a meal out whenever we can do that again um, easily. What, that's what we're giving up a month. But the impact for that family is huge. I mean, educational opportunities, healthcare, health-related instruction, nutrition, life skills, training. And one of the things I love about Compassion is they always work through the local church. So there is this huge spiritual component. And one of the realities of life is the poor still need the gospel. So if we can wed together concern for their, their physical being and their spiritual being, what, that becomes powerful. It's hard for people to hear the gospel when they're starving and hungry. Um, so it's just a win-win. And, and you can't believe how far just a little bit goes. Um, this is a picture of Godwin, and uh, Godwin is turning seven here in June. This was, uh, you, you can give a little extra money for their birthday. So 
we gave an extra hundred bucks. And this is what Godwin got for a hundred bucks. He got a goat, he, he got a chicken, he got a bunch of meat, he got rice, he got onions, he got sweet cakes, he got brand new clothes and some new shoes and a chair and a really big smile. And I thought, that's, that's a pretty good investment for a hundred bucks. Um, Look, folks, I, I, I might not be able to individually change the global structure and rid the world uh, of the poor, but I can make a difference. I, I mean, most of global poverty is uh, really impacted by corruption and macroeconomic decisions and climate and war and politics. I can't change that, but I can change the world for a kid. I'm reminded of that old story, you know, two guys are walking along the beach and one reaches down and picks up a starfish and throws it back in the water. The other guy says, what are you doing that for? It's not going to make any difference. And the guy looks at me and says, it does for that one. And it's true. I mean, that made a difference. It didn't make any difference in my life. I mean, a hundred bucks isn't a big deal. But in his world, it made a huge difference. So sponsoring a child might not change the world, but it will change the world for that child. Well, let me give you the last reason. Um, I want to be in tune with God's heart. I've been incredibly blessed. I want to express the reality of God's love and grace in my life. I want to make a difference in the lives of the kids. Last one. I want to experience Jesus. Timothy Schmaltz um, is a Catholic artist, and he created a bronze sculpture uh, depicting Jesus as a homeless person sleeping on a park bench. Um, it was originally installed at Regis College in Vancouver, and now they took casts of it and they made more, more of them and installed them worldwide. The only way you know it's Jesus is by, by, if you look at his feet there, you can see the wounds of the crucifixion. And as you can imagine, it's, um, people respond to it in very different ways. Some people are really offended. Uh, some people just adore it. <laughs> they uh, come and sit by it and pray. In, in one city, right after its installation, uh, one woman called the police within minutes, <laughs> assuming the figure beneath the blanket was a real homeless person. Smaltz, uh, Smaltz describes the sculpture as a visual translation of this passage in Matthew 25. Now, this is a passage where it's the end of time and the judgment is happening and it's the sheep and the goats. They come and stand before the king, and he's making judgment of where people go. And he says this to the sheep. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep are on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the, the creation of the world. For I was, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, 
Uh, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You know, um, I pray for an experience of the presence of Jesus in my life. You know, I, I want to encounter him. I, I think that's something that's true for all of us, isn't it? We, we want to, to encounter Jesus. That's why we sing uh, hymns and praise songs. It's why we recite the creeds, why we listen to sermons why we read our Bibles, why we meditate, why we pray. Part, part of that is we want to, to, to know Jesus deeper and experience more of Him and experience Him in a more profound and meaningful way. Um, I think that's part of our heart desire. And I think all those things are good to do. But what I sometimes forget is where Jesus really is. Jesus is in the least and the lost and the broken and the wounded and the hungry, the vulnerable. Jesus is in the unpretty places, the desperate places. Jesus is in the poor. In one sense, the majestic king of the universe the majestic King Jesus, by his own choice and volition, has stooped and surrendered in such a way that he is in the vulnerable and the poor. <laughs> and it is in them I can experience him. When I sponsor a child, from God's perspective, I'm sponsoring Jesus and I'm experiencing Jesus and I'm serving Jesus. That's why I sponsor Compassion Kids. And my prayer this morning is that you will want to sponsor a Compassion Kid as well. I'm going to end by, by letting you watch, having you watch it. Uh, just a really short video that kind of captures uh, the impact of uh, what we're talking about. In the Philippines, it's so smelly, very dark water. You can see trash, rats, all of the crimes. The friends that I played with in the neighborhood got captured and was being trained to become child soldiers. In a given week, we'll go at least for three days without food. We would beg our parents just to buy one apple, but even the rotten ones we could not afford to buy. 
I just want to taste it. I just want to eat that fruit. In a period of 18 months, I lost my small brother, Patrick, my mom, and I lost my stepdad because of the terrifying disease of HIV AIDS. When my mother died, I was lost. I was looking for hope, for God to just show me that everything was going to be okay. Not knowing what tomorrow will look like, not knowing whether I would have a home, whether we would live to see the next day. I don't know why Aaron Mitchell decided to sponsor me, but when he did, my whole life changed. A group of people from Compassion showed up at my church. They said, you're gonna go to school, and then somebody's going to write to you. I don't have to worry about whether my parents would have enough money to keep me going to school. Even if I get sick, someone was there to take care of me. I felt safe. I felt wanted. My sponsor is Edwin Bunny. Maria and Hanshru. Aaron Mitu. Five women from a Lutheran church that were sponsoring me. I am now a physical therapist and I'm working in a hospital. Clinical social worker. I was the first child in my family to go to high school, to go to college. I have a bachelor and a master in, in, in biomedical engineering, second master in engineering management, and uh, they called me into ministry, so I had to go and get a third master. I have a ministry called Youth Arise Africa that works with boys who don't have father figures. We opened a small school. It's now providing the same opportunity that Compassion provided to me so that they too can break out of the cycle of poverty. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. You do for me. You did for me. You did it for me. Sponsor a child today to break the cycle of poverty in a child's life, like my sponsor, did for me.